Today is Father's Day. As we already recognize, I typically don't do a topical message of the day. It's okay to do it. We normally go through a text, a scripture, and here we are in John chapter 17, and so we'll continue with that. But I think you're going to find the message today very applicable to fathers. And really a great charge, even as I was wrestling through it this week. Look at verse 17 of chapter 17. This brings up this concept of sanctification. Something that is significantly important for the church and particularly to fathers, spiritual fathers who would lead their homes, would lead the church and really lead the culture into this idea of sanctification. This sentence here in verse 17 is worth memorizing. It is worth meditating on. It is worth hiding in your heart. Let that rattle around in your mind for a little while. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In fact, I would like for you to Recite this with me in that phraseology. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Let's say this out loud together as a church body. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I encourage you to consider thinking on that this week. And we'll unpack it a little bit here today. I don't intend to give a full orb presentation on this doctrine of sanctification. I'll just barely scratch the surface. I'll use some of the guidelines that are found in the text to to talk about it. But let me mention here in context, this is Jesus's fifth request, if you will, on the behalf of his disciples functioning as the high priest. He's praying for the sanctification of his disciples. Now the word sanctify here. Hagiadso in the Greek, it's a word from which we derive holy. To sanctify means to to make holy. Holiness conveys the idea of perfection. And not only in a moral sense, that's true, but really in all things. That's why we say that holiness is the chief attribute or characteristic of God, if you will. All of his attributes are said to be holy, whether it's his wrath, his love, his mercy, all of that is perfect in every way. And in that way, it's also, as some have described, a cut above the rest. That is, it is set apart. It is that idea of being set apart is also included in this idea then of to sanctify. It means to make perfect, to set apart. Something that is holy is therefore set apart from something that is unholy. Paul explained to the church at Ephesus what the sanctified life looks like for the Christian. 
And Gordon mentioned earlier I had to preach through Ephesians again. Well, Gordon, I bring it up all the time anyway, but I concur. It's a great book. And if you remember, is what we talked about in the class this morning. In the first four verses, it talks about those that are in Christ. One of the descriptions as the book of Ephesians begins, it says they are holy, right? They are set apart for God. What does that set apart life look like? Well, the doctrinal setting is in the first few chapters. By the time you get to chapter 5, it gives you the practical implication, and I'll, I'll just quote it for you. To be sanctified means to have a lifestyle that is characterized by love. He says walk in love. A lifestyle that is characterized by morality. Walk in morality, verse 3 of chapter 5. To walk or to live, if you will, as children of light as opposed to children of darkness, right? Verse 8 of chapter 5. Verse 15, to walk as a wise person, not as a fool. This is what a sanctified life looks like. In verse 18, to be filled with the Spirit. That doesn't mean to be somehow crazy. It means to be controlled. Controlled by the very Spirit of God, which results in a disposition of praise and thanksgiving and singing and making melody in your heart. To 521, to walk in submission in ways that are appropriate to the various relationships. And then that is expounded on to get to 527 and specifically calls men to model this and to take up this idea of sanctification, if you will, when he charges husbands, verse 25 of chapter 5 in Ephesians, to love your wives. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might, and here's the word, sanctify her, set her apart having cleansed her by the washing of the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The idea is a love that is purifying, a love that leads others to Christ, to be conformed to Christ. Men, what does it mean to be the head of your household? It means to lead like Christ. Loving, sacrificial, and yes, sanctifying. That is, lead towards the path of righteousness. Now you lead to the path of righteousness, you go down it yourself. They're going to follow. Follow Christ. And make it easier for others to follow Christ. Male leadership in the idea of sanctification in the home, the immediate setting, in, in the church, and then ultimately in the culture in which we live is absolutely critical. It is key. And by the way, the illustration given to me a lot is a key thing in leadership. It's like trying to move a chain, if you will. It's a lot easier to pull it than to push it. You get the imagery, right? 
lead, trailblaze, guide, live like Christ, call others to Christ. Those who are in Christ are disciples indeed of him, and all of us are called to sanctification. This sanctification, this setting apart, living in this way, it is not only a suppressor of evil in your own life, it is a critical suppressor of evil in the light of, in, in the uh, entire world. Jesus would call his disciples salt. To be salt, to be a preserving effect in the world in which we live. The Christian influence in our culture, especially in the large metropolitan areas as we're able to to witness in the current media, is waning, to say it mildly. There's a direct correlation between fatherless homes and violence in these various communities. You don't need more money, more government programs, more social reforms. They've all tried and they have all failed. We should know that by now. What you need is Christ and in particular men to pick up their cross and follow him. Others will follow along. Lead in godliness one home at a time and one life at a time. It is a great call, and I'm going to challenge men to indeed be godly men. Lead for Christ. Lead towards sanctification. Jesus prayed indeed that these men, and they were men, they had unique roles within the church to be sanctified. Not just so that they individually would be conformed to Christ, but because of those that they would influence. These would be the faithful men, the men of faith, the men that would be committed to it. And by their leadership would lead many, many to righteousness. And through their commitment, God used them as a means to bring about the gospel to the nations, which has endured even to this day. And because of that continuing influence, here we are as a church gathered around his holy word. Jesus prays for their sanctification. My application, certainly ours as well. Let's go ahead and read it, root it in its immediate context And note that this is the fifth element of his high priestly prayer. Let's read beginning in verse 9 of chapter 17. Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they're yours. All of mine are yours and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
I have given them your word. And the world has hated them. Because they're not of the world, just as I am out of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for sending the Son indeed to come to sanctify us in the truth of your word. I pray for your people, and particularly men, and even in this day, and those that would follow their leadership, Father, I pray that we would individually walk the path of righteousness and lead many sons and daughters to this glorious truth, strengthened by your spirit. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On the back of your worship folder, I've given you a few blocks to provide some organization to this text, and I'll see what I can get through with the time that remains. But essentially, I'm looking at the power of sanctification. We'll discuss that. The practice of it, how it works out. And then the parameters or the guidelines for it as we close out. Let's first look at the power of sanctification in and of itself. We've talked about what it is in general. Now let's look at the power of it where Jesus says in verse 14, I have given them your word. In the second phrase, he says about his disciples, they are not of the world. And then he gives... In the third phrase, the reason why, because I am not of the world. See the connection? I'm out of the world, so therefore those that are in me would naturally not be of the world. By world, he doesn't mean people, humanity. He's talking about a system, the world system, um, the culture at large. And it isn't just this culture at that time. It's any culture, any world system, if you will, as opposed to Christ. It's the culture. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. We'll look at a couple places there. John helps us in his epistles to flesh out this idea of the world used in this way. There's a term going about today that's in the news quite a bit, at least discussed a lot, of how awful our particular culture is because it's systemically racist, according to those proponents of that. I think it's systemically sinful, and that's the thing that they miss. All of it is. And it isn't just our culture, it's every culture. There is a systemic problem. It's called sin. It is what the world system ultimately is. It doesn't mean every aspect of it is bad, but through and through, it is corrupted by sin. 
John would say here in chapter 2 in 1 John, his epistle, verse 15, look down to there, 2.15, because of the state of the culture, the sinful system, if you will, he calls on his disciples then, he says, don't love the world, neither the things in the world. If anyone loves, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, this is where I'm getting the systemic idea. That's what it means, systemic, all of it. All that is in the world. And he gives an example. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away along with its desire, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. He's making a clear distinction As Jesus did, who said, they are not of the what? World. Just as I am not of the world. And here's John teaching this, that Christ taught him, then don't fall in love with the world system or the things that are in and part of the world. Ultimately, it's gone away. And if you put your hopes and dreams into whatever it is that is in the world, either material or immaterial, it's going to fail and pass away at some time. He looks specifically the idea of the flesh, the idea of the eyes, or the lust, some translate it that way, or pride. He's making a distinction here between the disciples and the rest of humanity that has a, we might call it a secular worldview. You can even add sinful worldview. All humanity is part of that as a as world system by default. They don't possess the unique love of the Father. Their desires come from their own heart, which is corrupt, called the flesh here. It's most easily discerned and demonstrated by what they lust for and what they desire. And the very pride at the heart of it to think, oh, I know what's best. I won't hear from correction from any outside source. By contrast, as I mentioned, Those that are in Christ, his disciples, and he's looking at those 11 that remain, they are, as he said, they're not of this world. They're not of the world system as Jesus is not. The idea, and I've heard it bandied about, oh, well, that person's just a worldly Christian. Can I tell you that? That's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a worldly Christian in that way. John speaks very black and white. Yeah, there may be times in which a Christian might engage in sinful behavior, but it isn't characteristic of their life and lifestyle. You know what's characteristic of it? They repent. They return. Yeah, they might fall, but they will get up by God's grace and return to him. They're not going to be characterized by a, and we might use the term, world or worldly in this sense, a sinful lifestyle. Don't take my word for it. Let's just see what 
the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has told us, flip over one more chapter to chapter 3 in 1 John. In chapter 3, the text reads in verse 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, I like the way it's phrased here, the term practice, because you get the idea, right? It isn't a single event, right? It's a practice. It's talking about, that's my lifestyle, you know? If you had a physician's office, you might say, well, that's my practice. What do you mean? That's what, that's what is the ongoing thing. That's what you do. Everyone whose lifestyle, then, if you might think of it translated that way, is, is that of sin. You're engaging in sin, and that is lawlessness. But on the contrary, Christ, verse 5, appears. He, he appeared for what purpose? To take away sin. And there's no sin in him. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. That's what he means by that. There's a change of heart in a Christian. A new direction. So that he won't keep on sinning. Oh, he might sin. But he's not going to continue in unrepentant sin. No one who keeps on sinning, that is, he lives in this unrepentant state, has either seen him or known him. That's a strong statement right there. You don't know God. You haven't actually seen him. You don't even know him. You may claim that you do, but it is evidence in how you actually live. Then he, I love the phraseology, little children, Because here's an elderly pastor talking to his congregation. He's about to pass off the scene, and but he still beloved. He still loves them, and they're beloved to him. And as a father, a spiritual father, talking to his children, little children, it's an endearing term. Yeah, he's going to give them harsh statements, of course, because he wants to protect them. He wants to provide for them. He wants to lead them. This is what a father does. And you can hear his heart cry out in verse 7, don't let anyone deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, he is of the what? The devil. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was destroy the works of the devil. It will be ultimately destroyed in the final day. But in this day, in the world, Christ is going about granting his disciples the power to destroy the deeds of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life through his holy word. No one born of God, verse 9, makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If you're alive, you breathe. 
If you're a Christian and you sin, you will repent and return. There are many people who rededicate their life, and I'm not going to press them on this. I've had them come to me. They want to rededicate their life. But actually, if they examine their heart, they're really repenting for the first time. (laughs) Before, it was just various things that brought about them making some sort of statement of faith, but it really wasn't genuine. And then they come forward because they have this new life now that wants to breathe out repentance and faith. The power, I hope you understand, then of living in this practice of righteousness isn't based on your own ability to do so. In fact, you have none. It is through the regenerative work of God. It is because you have been born of God. That's why. That's why there's a change in the disposition from of the world and then not of the world. Paul would tell his protege Titus this way in Titus 3 verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is, entails the idea of the sanctifying, can you see it? The separating work of the Holy Spirit. The wa- and he describes it this way, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to his promise. Salvation brings about a divine cleansing of sin, a gift, a gift of a new spirit-generated, spirit-empowered, spirit-protected life as God's own children and heirs. This is the new birth, a renewing by the Holy Spirit. He is the agent that is working out this regeneration, this washing This sanctifying power, back to our text in verse 14 of chapter 17, comes about through the revelation of Christ. Notice verse 14, he says, I have given them your word. That phrase, given the word, what does does he mean? He just said some things about God? Well, that's true. He did teach him. And is Jesus the final revelation of the word? Yes, that's true. But I think here the the connection that he's making is, look back in verse 6 of the same chapter. He says, I've manifested your name to the people. And note this phrase, you gave me what? Out of the world. They were in it. Now they're out. How'd they get out? Jesus manifested the name of God, to those people. They're no longer in the world. They're separated from the world that is sanctified. And they're manifest. God's word parallels to the idea of giving their word. 
This has been a theme from the very beginning, and if you want to keep your finger and look at it, I'll just read it for you because I've said it many times. In the very first chapter of John, John sets this up talking about the Word who was in the very beginning. And in verse 18, it says, No one's ever seen God. The only God who was at the Father's side, who is that? Christ, Jesus. He has made him known. He has explained him. He has manifested the Father. That's where this is getting from. The way sanctification works is that it is a divine disclosure of who God is. Aspects of his nature, his attributes, and what we know about him comes through the revelatory work of Jesus Christ. It is through Christ manifesting and giving his word then that that indeed his disciples are sanctified. The sanctification then is integral to what we would think of as salvation or regeneration, if you will. It's not separate. One who is saved is sanctified. Now, it will be fully realized in the eternal state in which you will get what we would call a glorified body. Or you can think of it as a sanctified body. It will be complete. But on this side of eternity, that is, in the world that he's not going to take his disciples out of, it's going to be, this trajectory will be increasingly manifested by those who are in Christ, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And in that sense, this process in time, that is, in the world, is done in a synergistic process through the regenerate believer who, through the power of the Spirit, puts to death the deeds of the flesh and continually conforms to the image of Christ. It will be perfectly realized. It's guaranteed in the eternal state. This side, you will see manifestations of it. And it is through the disclosure that Christ provides. He gives his word. And this can be difficult to explain, but all of a sudden, there is a change in your relationship in your attitude and your thoughts and your affections about Jesus Christ and about God that is deep and it cannot be taken away. It is because of Christ has made known God in your heart and brought about sanctification. Well, maybe you'd like to see a little bit more of it. And that's... Jesus' prayer as well in verse 15 of chapter 17. Regenerating the believers, sanctifying them, setting them along this trajectory in this life, that will necessarily create a problem. Because you have those who were in the world, but now they're not of the world. Look at verse 15. I don't ask you that you take them out of the world. 
but that you would keep them from the evil one. That's the devil. That's the world system. That's the father of it all. That's the prayer that you would need to be protected. And then notice here, he repeats this phrase that he said in verse 14. They are not, in verse 16, he says the same, essentially the same thing. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. This rephrasing is, is a repetition again once to, to tell about the distinction between those that are in Christ and those that are not. If you are a Christian... If you are in Christ, you are separated. You are sanctified from the world. That's the condition that it actually exists. And Jesus says, look in verse 14, he says this separation then that occurs through the regenerate heart of the believer, the change of heart, no longer of the world, then that creates a state in which the Christian will be hated by the world. And again, world is not people per se, but the world system and those that are aligned with it, those who have the ideology of the world. You're like a fish out of water. There's something different. The world system hates God. The world system is in rebellion against God. The world system is under the prince of the power of the air, if you will. The devil. The world system hated Jesus Christ. They put him to death on the cross. An innocent man who was truly innocent, who did no evil. The only one in absolute Perfection and no guilt was crucified. Can I give you a thought here? The world system hasn't changed. Oh, we might use different rhetoric. We might use Jesus' words and Christian languages and, and niceties and so forth. Maybe change ideas to mythological terms so you can still speak in a flattering world but way, but can I tell you this? The world system hates Jesus Christ just as much as today as they did then. And if they had a chance, they'd put him to death right now. Paul will explain that. That's why they were persecuting him. Because they couldn't put their hands on Jesus. So, one that was separate from the world creates certain amount of antagonism and therefore they hate. And they want to put him to death. And they did. They eventually cut his head off. If you live for Christ, you can expect to suffer varying degrees of persecution. If you love Christ, you're going to obey him, as the text has said in a number of occasions. The world system creates a caricature of Jesus. Their Jesus does this or that. They've crafted an idol of their own imagination that 
resembles Jesus no more than a Renaissance painting. I was um, reading some arguments concerning gender and sexuality, these kinds of things, from those that would claim to be Christians. Now, if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be, what, not of the world. (laughs) There's going to be something different in your ideology. I'm not saying every idea, philosophy, and information of the system is, is necessarily false, but the trajectory is corrupt and false. And how can you know it is? You can compare it to something. We'll get to that in a minute. That's the parameters. That is the very truth of God. They'll say that, oh, those that have a caricature of Jesus, they'll say, well, we're more enlightened than they were in those olden days. They didn't know any better. They would have written the word a little different, if you will. They might suggest, well, Jesus really didn't address these ideas of LGBTQT and whatever else they want to add to the acronym there. The reality is they're in darkness. They're perversely dancing to a golden calf of their own making. If you want to turn there, just for the sake of time, Matthew chapter 19. In the context of divorce, Jesus quotes scripture. And in verse 4 of chapter 19, I'll just show you this as an example. He answers, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Separation occurs because of sin. So we acknowledge that. What do you do about it? Well, you would repent and return. But but in this point that he's making, I hope you can see, here in Jesus' refutation to their ideas, he affirms creation. He created them when? Oh, from the very beginning, right? I mean, that's what Genesis says, right? He affirms that they're as a male and female. He affirms that the two, Adam and Eve, that they would be married, have children, that's the imagery of the euphemism, become one flesh. That there is this human author, Moses, that writes God's inspired word and he affirms the authority of scripture no wonder the modernist liberal movement moves so hard then to discount the authority of God's word today the postmodernist leftists now get into this insane idea of getting rid of any biological distinctions between male and female And in doing so, they set themselves on the pathway to societal destruction. 
It is a corrupting influence. It'll destroy you. Rejecting God's truth will actually bring about death, and that's what this world system is ultimately about. That's the trajectory. I was reading an article the other day. It said, if, if I understood it correctly, it said our population replacement rate here in America is at 1.7. That's below replacement, isn't it? This perverse ideology will continue to lead to the demise of our own destruction. For those that are in church, I'll just add, don't listen to the world. <laughs> listen to God's word. It's countercultural. There's a tension then that's created. Because if you live in accordance to God's word, that's a different trajectory and it creates a tension. Back in our text here in verse 15, Jesus recognizes that and he says, I don't ask you to take them out. There will be a tension because you have a totally different idea and ideology about life. You'll have the tension caused by the evil one. And he prays that God would protect them from the evil one. You're going to need a lot of wisdom in this world to walk, to live. There's two ways to deal with this tension of the world system, which is contrary to God's worldview. You could withdraw, or you can engage. And there may be a good reason to do both in various degrees. It's hard to maintain a proper and healthy balance. You'll need certain wisdom from God to indeed do that. There are some that say, well, the system is so awful and corrupt, let's just get away and make our own enclave. Let's just totally withdraw from the world. In the early days of the church, I think somewhere around the third century, there was a group of folks that decided to do it. We call them the Desert Fathers. A little strange in some of their ideas, but their motivation was they recognized the systemic sinfulness of the world, and to be relieved from that, they, they, they isolated themselves, and soon monastic orders developed on the same thing. Obviously, the problem is we're not meant to be isolated. Jesus says, I don't ask that you take them out. If he wanted to take you totally out of the world, he would have done that. So there's no need to cloister up and be totally isolated, if you will, from the world so that your withdrawal is total and you're not engaging. On the other hand, there's a great um, challenge here in keeping this tension in the right perspective is that you don't, okay, well, we're going to leave the whole world to Christ, so we'll just totally engage. And so we'll just act like them and speak like them and whatever musical forms that they have, we'll just grab all of that. All, it's all good. The wholesale adoption of the world's values. Well, then how could you be not of the world. <laughs> That's the problem, right? You have to be in it, but you don't need to be of it. 
There's a distinction there. And I'm not going to give you a list of do's and don'ts. I have no, no um, desire to do that. I just ask you to find your parameters for that in God's holy word. And that's our next point here. In verse 17 that I had you read out earlier, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So, well, how can I live as a wise person? Making the best use of my time because I recognize the days are evil. The world itself is systemic. To what degree do I need to withdraw? To what degree do I need to engage? The guideline is God's holy word. Sanctify the, in the truth, your word is truth. The statement here, notice it says, in the truth. God's word has been a constant theme here in Jesus' farewell discourse. It's understandable that the apostles continued this theme as they, they taught the very words of Christ on a practical way, individually, Christ demonstrated the parameter and the power of God's word when the, the evil one, the devil himself, tempted Jesus in, his, in a very physically weakened state. But Jesus, but Jesus had a reply to him on each occasion. Do you remember? It is written... It is written, and it is written. Do you want to make a decision, need the wisdom, ask of God? It's not going to speak to you in some sort of audible voice or move your hand about like a Ouija board. It is written in his word. Pick it up and read. Do you want to be sanctified? Do you want to, to live in the world, but not of the world, Hide his word in your heart. So that's what rings up in your mind then when you're confronted with some sort of decision. Will this glorify God or not glorify God? Will I be walking in wisdom or not walking in wisdom? Will I be walking in light or not walking in light? Look to God's word. That is the resource indeed for it. You have to be careful, and I'll just finish out with just a couple points about this. You do have to be careful, though, in looking at God's Word that you don't have some sort of shallow misrepresentation of biblical truth. That's been a problem from the very beginning. Turn to Second Peter chapter 3. Paul would tell his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2. You're turning to 2 Peter 3. I just wanted to give you this verse, save some time. He tells him, you've heard this verse before, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. You might have memorized in the King James, rightly dividing the word of truth. That is, let's make sure... We get it right. 
We talked earlier, again, in Gordon's class, I'm going to keep picking on you, but I just remembered it. We talked about usage of words, for example, which people can misrepresent. How, how do you understand the meaning of a word? You look at it in its, in its context. The idea is you're lining it up, this rightly dividing the word of truth. That is, let's see how it lines up. We know that we're not infallible interpreters of the word. That's why the church at Berea was commended for what? Searching the scriptures to see if these things be so. I don't want you to take everything I say carte blanche, right? Uh, Hopefully I can encourage you to look at the word, to examine it for yourself. Oh, I would expect a certain degree of respect since, oh, well, he spent some time studying this. Maybe he's got some of this right Um, If I'm in error, correct me. But look at it yourself to rightly divide the word of truth so that indeed you would understand it and not be ashamed. Now, if you've got to 2 Peter, didn't have a lot of time for this, but this is just an example and it burdens me. We talk about the word of truth, that that's what you're going to be sanctified by. But here's an example Peter, in chapter 3 of his second epistle, talks about our salvation, as he says, our beloved Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. Some of these things in them are hard to understand. You have to know that going in. You just don't take a surface look. Yes, some things might be really self-evident, but there are other things that are hard to understand. You'll have to take more time to think them, to compare, to see it in context. Because if you don't do that, if you don't take the time to diligently search a scripture, if you don't work hard to diligently make sure these things line up properly, they measure outright, then notice here as he goes on, the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scripture. You know how you can tell some of that? They have an idea and an agenda, and then they look to see how they can shoehorn it into Scripture. When somebody does that, be very careful. Be very cautious. It's, it's almost self-evident. They have no idea. They say, well, okay, well, Jesus said don't eat. I mean, the Old Testament says don't eat shellfish, so therefore uh, homosexuality is okay because it's in the same code. That's such an ignorant an unstable way to deal with the text of Scripture. They have no idea about the Mosaic Code and what it was written for. No idea about the morality of God, the design at the very beginning. All these things that would naturally fit together. It is the ignorant and unstable, as mentioned here, they twist the Scripture and ultimately to their own destruction. I talked to a couple recently that were listening to ignorant and unstable people. They abandoned the clear truth to grab onto these ideas and ideologies that are not founded in Scripture. 
And I told him point blank, you're doing this to, the destruct, to your destruction. It'll destroy you, and it's going to destroy your family. This is a couple that seemed to really respect me and the direction that I was going. I was surprised by the fact that they had no interest in asking me this question. Why would you say that? Their response was, well, the people running this thing, they said they weren't a cult. (laughs) I gave them about five or six points with scripture, each one. It's the violation of this, 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 this. Their response, well, they said they weren't that. So the admonition there in verse 17 is, and he that thinks he stands should take heed lest he fall, but here's the warning here and Peter gives, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing that what? There are ignorant and unstable people out there that are going to lead you to destruction, that twist the scriptures. Take care, it says, that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And how will you accomplish that? Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever. This idea of growing is synonymous to sanctification. That's the idea. You're sanctifying your mind. In what? In the truth about Christ. It is a growing knowledge. And beloved, if you're not grounded in the truth and thereby growing in the truth, you may be taken away to, by your own, uh, by, taken away to destruction by these false teachers, which there are many. It always amazes me to, to read the epistles and how often they talked about this. That's when they were first writing <laughs> in the first century. Most of them will say about evil days coming and false teachers and so forth. And the call is then not to be taken away by philosophy and empty deceit, by human tradition, according to the elements of the world, but be grounded and grow in Christ. That phrase in verse 17 is one I want to leave with you again. And may it linger in your mind as you think through these things this week. Let's repeat this together, this phrase, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 17, let's do it together and we'll pray. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Let us pray. Father. I do thank you for your word, which is indeed true in every aspect. I do pray that Christ's prayer would be manifested in our day in a great way. May many sons and daughters see the glory of God through Jesus Christ and by the Spirit to indeed be sanctified in this truth. May they see the glory of Christ in your word. May it rise up 
in the various circumstances that they might find themselves in so that they may be grounded in the truth and grow in it. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'll give you a moment now to think on these things. Take a moment even now.